Welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats. If you're in this room, if you're watching from online, welcome. Uh, there, last I checked, there were quite a few people streaming, and I've had a whole bunch of messages from people who are watching us on YouTube and uh, streaming at home. And right now, we have people all over Alice Springs uh, who have decided that they would like to do church with us from the comfort of their lounge room this morning. Can you imagine? Uh, some of them put selfies up and they were wearing, you know, like pretty nice clothes on the top half, but they didn't show what was on the bottom half. So I'm thinking they did the newsreader trick and they, uh, you know, dressed up on top and just left their PJs on the bottom. What do you think? But those of us who are in the room, some of you, you straightened your hair this morning and all sorts of stuff. Well done, well done. Welcome. Church is looking a little bit different over the next little while, isn't it? But how many people know that no matter the meeting place changes, the people doesn't change? Amen? The church is not characterized by an address on a street corner. It is not characterized by a place. It is not characterized by a building. It is characterized by a people. Oh, I could get a better amen than that. If you're watching online, let me get an amen from you as well. Excellent. Good. And uh, the church is characterized by a people that God has redeemed and called to himself. And so what's amazing in this season as we have all these social distancing rules coming in uh, and we've got the need to stay home. There are people in isolation watching. I just got a message before from Michelle. Michelle's watching a woman, hey? She was off with us uh, as a team in India a little while ago and now she's back in her community, been in isolation because of her travel and she's still doing church with God's family. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And uh, I think this is wonderful. I celebrate the way the church rises to the occasion when terrible times happen. How many people are with me on that one? Uh, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth and that we are the light of the world. And the reason for that is because the world needs our saltiness and the darkness out there needs us to shine our light. Who could say amen to that one? So listen, many of us, I know it's a time of anxiety in our society. It's a time of great fear for some of us. And some of us, I've had been chatting with people during the week who are just feeling almost suffocated by the anxiety and the concern for themselves, for loved ones, for our community or the communities that they're part of. And uh, how many people know that the Christian faith does not call us to live in denial? We're not psychopaths. We're not emotionally unsound people that just pretend like everything's fine all the time. Actually, what the Christian faith does is it empowers us to look the human tragedies dead in the eye and rise above them in spite of them. And so we're not denying it, we're not, living in, we're not living in hiding from the things that are wrong, but actually what we're saying is that we have equipment on the inside of us to cope with whatever goes wrong in our lives, in our world and in our society. And for thousands of years the church has been doing just that. Whenever things are really bad, the church's light really shines. And you can study the history of the church and see. So in a moment, we're going to pray before we turn to God's word. But uh, listen, if you're feeling the difficulty of this season, then we're standing with you together. We're not criticizing you. Uh, We know that there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of anxiety. Right now, people will be concerned about businesses. People will be concerned about income. People will be concerned about their own health or that of their family members, especially those who are in vulnerable categories. And we know that these are a concern for people. And uh, we are going to be standing together. Who can say amen to that? So I want to encourage you in this season, even if you're uh, practicing social distancing, don't do social disconnecting though, okay? Stay connected together. Stay uh, capitalising on the platforms that we have available as a church. You know what? You can't catch a virus by giving someone a phone call. 
You can't catch a virus by dropping someone a, an email or a text message or a Facebook messenger and saying, hey, how are you doing? Is everything okay? And listen, if you're part of the Desert Life Church family, we want to make sure that you're okay. Life's about to get challenging from us, for us all because for the, about 90% of our church, our Sunday gatherings would be one of the main ways that we stay in touch together. Because on those service times, we are physically proximate, we're near each other, we can chat, we can have a cuppa and a chat, worship and pray together, we can put a hand on each other and pray. Uh, but things are changing now, aren't they, around that? So what I want to do is, I just want to ensure that I encourage you, if you're part of the Desert Life Church family, please capitalise on the platforms we have available to stay connected with us, okay? And we're not asking you to leave the house if you don't want to. We're not asking you to attend large gatherings if you don't want to, okay? We will follow all of the government guidelines and uh, all of the prediction is that they're going to become more stringent and we may not even be able to do what we're doing today with a number of services happening and a, and a, uh, a packed room today. Give us a cheer if you're in the room this morning, all you folks. Oh, everybody's so thrilled. They have so much space to spread out together. And uh, listen, we might be doing socially distant, but it's a time now for us to be more connected than ever, okay? So make sure you stay in touch with us. If you're struggling, if you have an issue, we want to help. The ministries of our church, the leaders in our church, the community in our church, we want to help you. We do not want you to suffer alone. We do not want you to suffer in silence. If you end up in isolation and you need help with your groceries, I'm cooking you chicken soup, okay? And uh, if you haven't had my chicken soup, you, you just wait. Don't pretend to get sick just to taste it, but if you do, all right? We, uh, our team, across all layers of our church, from our staff, our eldership, our key leaders, our volunteers, our community members, we want to make sure we look after each other in this time. And the truth is, no matter what happens in society, that should never change in the church of Jesus. Who could say amen? amen. So we're standing together. And we're all in this together as well. We don't want anybody left on their own. Why don't we spend some time just in prayer, hey? And why don't we just surrender over to Jesus all of the things that are happening in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own circumstances, whether it's work, family, state of health, travel plans cancelled, the dynamics of all sorts of things that you were planning over the next few months that are now up in the air or cancelled or postponed. I know there must be so much anxiety for some of us and stress about some of these things. But today, we are going to call on the name of the God who says that when he gives us his peace, it passes all understanding, doesn't it? And I've experienced so many times in my life, in the midst of the chaos, the power of the presence of Jesus Christ. And he loves us. He's for us. In fact, he died a sacrificial death so we could know the peace of God. So right now, whether you're watching at home, whether you're watching in one of the town camps, there are three town camps in Alice Springs where people are tuned in right now. There's a number of people watching online. And uh, wherever you are, why don't we just pray right now, hey? Our Father, amidst all the chaos, the negative reports, the fear, the uncertainty, health challenges, concern for loved ones and the vulnerable, difficulties shopping, difficulties traveling, the need to distance from others. Lord, we pray right now that whatever's going on in the hearts and minds of this, our family, we ask right now for the peace of Jesus to come into our hearts and minds. Let that be the dominant focus point for us in this moment. King Jesus, come and walk on the troubled waters of everything that's going on in our souls. Every thought we're finding it hard to captivate, help us and give us your grace. Just soothe every fear. 
Lord, you said that you would not leave us as an orphan, but you would ask the Father and he would send us another comforter, someone the same as you, but someone in the form of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the person of God that comes and dwells in us and moves in us and soothes and comforts us in all of our pain, in all of our distress. So we call on the presence of the Holy Spirit today, Father. We humble our hearts and we say, would you please come? Come into our lives, come into our living rooms, come into our minds, come into our situations, come into this community. Move in our nation, move in the nations of the earth. And let this be a time where your life spreads in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen and amen. Now, I have just took a snapshot of a few people that gave us uh, messages that they were watching online. And uh, let's see now. I'd like to say hi to, to Krupa, to David and Judy Eckerman, to Jason and Stacy Clark, the six family Clark members, six Clark family members who are watching at home. <laughs> Arun Phillips is at home. He said it's sounding good and that's important because he's a sound man. <laughs> Michelle Ayres from Alpara. Jan Robertson, welcome Jan. It's great to get a message from you. Arthur's online. Thanks, Arthur. Um, Anisha, hi Anisha, you're online. Basil's online, you and the family. Ailey, hi Ailey, it's good to see from you. Chantel Doherty and the family, seven of you guys all watching together. Ken and Sharon Fiddler. And uh, Ken was saying that Sharon, Ken was singing along and Sharon was playing along with our worship time this morning. So do, do you think that means Sharon plays an instrument? That's pretty cool. We just discovered something about her, didn't we? And she's now become famous in YouTube land. And uh, look, if I haven't mentioned your name, it's only because I don't have your comment in the comments box. And now, like a good pastor, I have to turn my phone off in church, so I can't uh, keep doing shout-outs anymore unless Peter McCallan, our service producer, sends me your details. You doing okay? We've been doing a series as a church where we've been focusing beneath the waterline of our lives. And we've been asking ourselves the question... How can I grow more in life? How can I live a more full, fully expanded life? And how can I stretch my faith and believe more and believe for more in life? We've been focusing on this as a church community with the view that this actually soaks into our sense of self, into our identity. And it actually impacts, if it impacts our identity, it impacts the rest of our life, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 4 Verse 27 says, above all else, guard your heart. And then it tells us why we should guard our heart. It says, because from there, everything else flows. And isn't that so true? The heart. Everybody say heart. The heart is the part of your life. It's not just the physical pump that pumps the blood through your body, although that's very important. But when the Bible uses the phrase, the heart, it's talking about that invisible part of you where your mind that's the thoughts you think, your emotions, that's the feelings that you feel, and your will, that is the choices that you make, where those three parts of life join together. We like to call it the confluence of your mind, your will, your emotions, the thing that makes you who you are. And the Bible tells us we should guard that because from there, everything else in our lives is affected. And it uses the imagery in that verse of a spring. It's from there springs up everything else out of our lives, like an underground water source. And whatever's in that water source, if you use that water to water the plants, it'll affect those plants, won't it? For good or for ill, if you look at the uh, polluted water tables around the world. And we know that our identity actually springs from our heart. Our identity, who we are as a person, our sense of self. 
why we do what we do. You know, it's one of the, the uh, terrible things about the Christian world is the presence of religion. And religion says, just change the externals and you'll be fine. You'll be right with God. God will love you if you watch your behaviour. And uh, that's very unfortunate because the truth of the matter is that you can change all of your behaviours, but if you don't get into what's going on in your heart, then you haven't experienced transformation. You've only experienced behaviour modification. Isn't that true? And here's the thing about behaviour modification. For all but 1% of us, it's really not sustainable. How many people have uh, unutilised gym memberships? Just a couple of them. Oh, there's some people who are so bold to put up their hands straight away then. Brave souls. How many people started off January 1 with some type of New Year resolution? And now we're here on the 22nd of March. How's that New Year resolution going? You doing okay? We're not criticising you. You're not going to get in trouble. But the truth is, just mere behaviour modification, it doesn't change our lives, does it? It doesn't change our lives. I can tell you this because of my lengthy history of a chronic substance abuser and uh, someone who was dependent on alcohol and then later on drugs and all sorts of things and relationships and people and approval and all types of things. And I can tell you that no amount of behavioural modification set me free from those processes. What had to happen was heart transformation. How many people that are in the room that I can see could give me a little wave and say, I get you, Pastor Ben. I've also experienced a heart transformation and I know the difference between just changing the outside or a transformation on the inside. Give me a little wave of testimony. If you're an introvert, just give me like a pinky wave of testimony. It's okay. You don't have to draw attention to yourself. So we've been focusing on this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3 onwards. It's a powerful passage. It goes from verse 3 through till about verse 14. And what's amazing is in the ancient Greek language that it was written in, fortunately you can get an English translation like I'm holding, so you don't have to be a Greek scholar to read it anymore. But in the, in the ancient text that was written in by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, he wrote that whole section, verse 3 through to verse 14, as one single sentence. Doesn't that blow your mind? Any English teachers in the room? Any English teachers watching online, Michelle? The teachers will tell you that if you write such a long sentence, it's not very easy to read and you're not doing your listeners any favours. And of course, Paul was so captivated with a celebration of all of the wonderful things that happen in the human life. And what he was really celebrating was not, oh great, you guys have changed your behaviours now. You guys used to be doing naughty things, now you're doing good things, or you used to you know, dress this way, now you dress this way. He wasn't celebrating anything about the externals. He was celebrating the beauty of a transformed heart and how that happened, and why that happens. He was celebrating what I like to think of as an identity shift. Let's say that. Let's say identity shift. That's much better than identity theft, isn't it? Identity shift. That when these Ephesian believers, and by implication us today, who still get to read and live out these precious scriptures that we have, when Paul wrote this to them, he was celebrating the shift in identity they had known. And he was there, he saw the church in Ephesus, he'd, he'd walked down those streets, he'd ministered in that town, he'd seen amazing things. And so he was celebrating, wow, it's amazing what God has done. How many people have ever climbed a mountaintop or a canyon or something in Alice Springs? We love doing it in Central Australia, don't we? Climbing our wonderful escarpments and then looking out and just watching a, a sunset. Isn't it awesome, hey? Or a sunrise. I prefer the sunset to the sunrise only because it doesn't involve me having to wake up so early. Who's with me? How many people are normal, healthy individuals that don't like early mornings? And how many people are those psychotic morning people? Let's see, just a few of you. I can tell because you're all, you're all happy. 
in the mornings. Well, I love climbing up and I love watching a sunset and just watching that majestic landscape change colour as the sun goes down. Isn't it true that when you see something magnificent, whether it's going to Uluru, who stood at Uluru and just the first time you saw it in person went, wow, you done that? When we were in India, over 20 years I've done 29 visits to India. This last team that we went on was my 29th trip to that nation. And uh, we went to the Taj Mahal this time with the team. And it was the first time in 29 visits over 20 years that I've ever done any type of tourist activity in India. Because normally when I go, I have a very full ministry schedule and you have spare time, but then people ask you to do more stuff and you feel compassion, so you say yes. Uh, but this time we had a team, so I thought, right, I'll, I'll trick them into wanting to do more missions by letting them have at least one fun day in all the midst of all the chaos that they were serving God in. And so we went to the Taj Mahal. And as you go to the Taj Mahal, who's been there before? Give me a little show of waves. If you're watching online, just leave a comment in the box saying, on our online chat, you leave a comment saying that you were there. Well, when you, when you go there, you walk through a, a sort of cattle run type thing where they, they get all the tourists going. And then you walk up these stairs and you go through a big archway. And once you go through that archway, you then get your first glimpse of the Taj Mahal. It's probably a few hundred metres away and there are, there are like pools with fountains going from the steps you walk up right to where the Taj Mahal is. So as you get to that view, this panorama opens up before you and you see this magnificent building that took 17 years to build, an incredible feat of engineering. And it's all made of pure marble, chiselled and inlaid and cut and fitted together. And they say, they used to say that just one cartload of the marble that went into it used to take seven months for a bullock dray to take a cart somewhere, load it up with marble and bring it back. And it was literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cartloads that went into creating that building. Anyway, why am I telling you this? Not because the government of India are sponsoring me as a uh, travel guide for their nation now, but the, simply for the fact that when you understand how something so awesome, it almost takes your breath away, doesn't it? You stand there and you're like, wow. You see it when you stand before mountains, mountain peaks, when you stand before amazing buildings. What about when you see someone do something amazing? Ever, ever seen a, a sports person just do something incredible and before you even knew it, you're on your feet going, wow! Have you ever had that experience? Anyone? People in church this morning just staring at me like a goldfish looking at a new bowl. <laughs> Not obviously sports fans. What about when someone in your family achieves something magnificent? Ever found yourself doing the involuntary response? Wow, that's amazing! My, uh, my, my wife and my children, who are just amazing individuals... They celebrated my birthday recently. Um, and you know how I always say to you, I'm in my very, 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 very early 40s. Well, now I'm only in my early 40s, I'm afraid. It's, uh, it's changing. And um, they got me something I've wanted for a while as a birthday gift. Would you like to know what that was? You're going to be pretty surprised, I think. I might be the only man in the world whose family gave him a garment steamer for his birthday that was happy about it. Yeah, because simply I hate ironing. I hate ironing. But I also hate looking scruffy when my clothes are wrinkled and I also hate making all the women in the house do my ironing. And so therefore I'm in this conundrum where I have to do something I hate doing. And I've been dropping hints like an expert hint dropper for over two years and they finally picked up on those hints. So I unwrapped my very first garment steamer this week. 
It's amazing. If you've never experienced it, check it out. You can do your home curtains with it. and It's amazing. No excuses for scruffy-looking Ben anymore. And I opened up that box and I went, wow, this is amazing. It was an involuntary response. And I think they were shocked because Daniel, before I opened it up out of its amazing wrapping paper, amazing wrapping paper, uh, before I opened it, Danielle's going, look, if you don't like it, I've got the receipt. And I opened it up and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Think of all the steaming of garments I can now do. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But, you know, uh, when Paul writes Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 onwards, you have to have the sense that he's unpacking a breathtaking gift. That in his mind, as he imagines the transformation Jesus has made in the lives of the Ephesians, that he is celebrating something that he's going, wow, this is amazing. As he contemplates the gospel, as he contemplates the work of Jesus who sacrificed on our behalf to free us from the power, the penalty and the pollution of sin and darkness and chaos and pain, to heal our wounds, to bring us closer to God and wrap us in the loving embrace of the Father and the amazing change that that wrought in our lives. Who could just give me a little wave of testimony and say, man, it's true, Jesus really does change your life. Just being wrapped in the Father's embrace, it really does. And if we could go around the room today and spread this microphone, we, we won't because of social distancing, it would have to be disinfected before you're allowed to use it. But if we could go around, we could all share the amazing stories we have about the transforming idea of the Father's embrace. And like any time people share their story, we would sit there and we would go, wow, it's amazing. You ever heard that song, Look What the Lord Has Done? What a great song, hey? Wow, look what the Lord has done. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse three onwards, it's like Paul is going, wow, look what the Lord has done. And he's doing it for a reason. He's explaining to the Ephesian church a celebration. I'm celebrating your new identity that is found when you say yes to the gospel, when you say yes to God's offer of life. So we're just going to read the first couple of verses. We've been focusing on these as a church. So a lot of it's been unpacked, but we're just going to get to the bit we're up to today. Ephesians chapter 1. From verse 3, I'm reading from the NIV version, that translation, but you can read from whichever one you like. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say our. So before we go any further, we note there's an ourness to this. This is a community word. This is a community message. This is not a, oh, it's okay for him and it's okay for her and it's all right for she and it's all right, all right for he. This is a community word. This is that it's the God and Father of our Lord and that invites all people, all people no matter which background we're from, all people no matter what we've been up to this week, all people no matter how we feel, all people no matter how anxious we are, all people no matter how bad our behaviours might seem to us, all people no matter how loaded down we guilt, all people no matter how crippled by shame, all people no matter how hurt and wounded, all people no matter how broken, all people are invited by the gospel to become part of this group that could say, let's celebrate what our God has done. Who could say amen? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, everybody say chose, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Everybody say the word chosen. We're going to focus together in our last few remaining minutes on this phrase, chosen in him. Chosen. How many people are awesome at sports? Anybody? 
How many people like me should never be trusted to throw things, kick things, hit stuff with stuff? I, I, I have a curse of being a left-hander. Um, <laughs> are you a lefty as well? A lefty? I thought that was just your politics, Paul, but there you go. I, I, uh, I was the kid in school. I was a wheezy kid. I was a sick kid. I had this kind of weird birth defect with my shoulders. And so uh, I, I was one of those kids that was not good at sports. And therefore, you know when the teacher says we're going to get two captains and the captains are going to pick their teams? Who remembers this painful process? If you're good at sport, it was never painful because you were chosen in the first couple of you know, choices and you'd strut over feeling good about yourself. But if you're Ben Tifi, you were always left the last one there until... The cap is that who else in the room just needs some inner healing today from the trauma of the past? You can join me in my therapy moment right now. And I'd always be the last one there. And then the teacher, I went to an all boys school, and the uh, teacher would say, Righto, well, who's going to have Tifi? And both the captains would protest, Oh, not Tifi! And then I'd be made to go on one team, and everyone on the team would be like, Oh, tell ya. It's painful, isn't it? The feeling of not being chosen. What about in your workplace? Have you ever got wind in the workplace that a new position's opening up, maybe a management role or a promotion or something like that, and you kind of thought you deserved it and then you found out someone else got it? Ever had that experience? What about hearing that a friend's having a function or a party or a wedding party or something like that and thinking, oh, that'll be really, really fun, and then finding out you're not on the invitation list? It's not easy to cope with, is it? This business of not being chosen. Pray for Danielle, my wife. Um, how many families had the competition in your home with small children over whether they say mama or dada first? Anybody? Well, in our house, you know, I think it's just because of who loved them more and who nurtured them more and who spent more time with them. But um, all three of our children said dada before they said mama. And, you know, that took a lot of years of therapy and counselling for Danielle to get past to love those children unconditionally after that point. Not being chosen. Look, I'm making light of it, but the truth is many of us have experienced horrible things in life that are far more serious than not being selected for a footy team, that are far more serious than they go deep. And I'm only joking about the things I've joked about because what I don't want to do today is dig too much into your pain without your permission. And so... You know, if we all reflect, we'd all have areas where we still walk with a little bit of a limp from the experience that living in the human condition gives us, where we are wounded through not being chosen. Here's what's difficult. People around you can do everything to choose you. People around you can do everything to include you. But if you've got something deep on the inside of you that feels unchosen, you can live out of that sense of loss and sense of grief and sense of threatness for a long time, can't you? Isn't it true that feeling unchosen, it, it provides a lens for us and we sort of interpret so many things in life in light of being unchosen. I remember in the early days of dating a beautiful woman who is now my wife. I tricked her into marrying me. And I remember in the early days, I was such a person in pain and such a broken person that I used to worry because I didn't, I feared she didn't love me enough. And so many times we'd go out somewhere and in the back of my mind would be this idea, does she really like me? Does she really love me? How passionate is she? How, how enthusiastic is she about me? Is she giving me enough attention? 
And on the outside, I'm trying to pretend everything's fine. I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to act cool. I'm trying to, like, you know, um, have some suave charisma or something. It's always been a challenge for me to have that. And I'm trying to act all cool and calm. But on the inside, I, I was sweating and anxious. And every time after we finished hanging out together and I'd go home and I'd go to bed and I'd lie there and I'd look up at the roof and I'd actually think about breaking up with her. Now, here's the weird thing about me, and you can just judge me now, that's okay. And I think about breaking up with her, and here's why. I think about breaking up with her because being with her made me fear that she didn't love me as much as I loved her. And dealing with that emotion was incredibly difficult, made me stressed, made me angry. It turns out, even though I wanted her to like me a lot, this ambiguous emotion I would feel would make me so angry, I'd actually be a bit mean to her sometimes in an attempt to push her away. And so many times I rehearsed my breakup speech with her and thought, right, I'm going to do it tonight. And then we'd go out to dinner or we'd go for a drive in her Datsun 120Y with a mismatching door. And she'd look at me and she'd bat those big blue eyes and I just couldn't bring myself to break up with her. But it doesn't mean that I didn't bring a lot of baggage into the relationship. Now, here's the truth. The problem wasn't a problem with her. The problem was a problem with me. And it didn't matter what she did. And it couldn't matter what she did. Because she couldn't change the fact that she was dealing with a human who deep on the inside was walking with a limp because they carried a sense that they were unchosen in life. And then, of course, you and I, we know we do this in all sorts of situations. Isn't that true? We do it all the time. And there are consequences to our relationships. There are consequences to our own mental health and well-being, isn't there? There are consequences to the way that we relate to other people. Consequences to what we offer the world in terms of our gifts and talents. Isn't that true? There are consequences. And no matter what happens on the outside of our lives, no matter who loves us, no matter how chosen we are by others, if something doesn't change on the inside, then that lens affects the way we see everything. When I was pastoring in Brisbane, a lady who was a very regular attender at our church, she suddenly stopped coming to church. And then we had some of our team, Just she was an older lady, so we just wanted to make sure she hadn't had a fall or something like that. And um, they, they got, tried to get in touch with her. She didn't respond to anyone's calls, anyone's messages. Someone went around to see her and she met them at the door and wouldn't talk to them. And eventually we sort of you know, sat down and had a discussion with her. And it turned out that she'd stopped coming to the church. Are you ready for it? Because on one Sunday, I didn't come and say hi to her. I want you to think about that. It's the unpardonable sin as a pastor, isn't it, that you didn't say hi to someone. And I said to her, oh, that's weird because I feel like I talk to you every single time I see you. She goes, no, on this day you walked in and you looked around like this and you didn't come and say hi to me. And, you know, we're talking 1,500 people in a room, by the way. But anyway, aside from that fact. Um, And I remember having a discussion with her saying, you know, do you think it's possible that there was something else going on that day other than me making a conscious choice, I no longer like you and want to be your friend? And we began to unpack why that negative emotion had just sort of risen up and why she was so upset. She was crying when she was talking to me about it. And I'm not critical of her, but she was deeply hurt. And as we began to unpack why she was deeply hurt, here's why. Because when I walked into the room and looked around like that and saw everybody in the room, then turned around and you know got ready to get up and preach on the platform or something, I wasn't saying to her, ooh, I don't like you, I refuse to talk to you. I was saying, wow. There's lots of people here. I really better focus on doing a good job with the sermon today because they've all come out and they get from her reality. And her reality provided a very hurtful reality for her. So we solved the problem. We solved the problem. Here's how we solved the problem. We made an agreement. I'll talk to you 
every time I see you. And the times I don't talk to you, I promise if I'm mad at you, if I conclude I don't want to be your friend anymore, if I've concluded that you're some social pariah that I want to have nothing to do with, I won't just ignore you. I'll sit down with you and I'll tell you I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Does that make sense? And so I said, so unless you and I sit down and have that conversation, don't ever formulate that conclusion based on whether I said hi to you on Sunday along with 1,499 other people or not. Does that make sense? Now, we're not going to judge that lady because the truth is you and I do that all the time in our lives, that we have wounds, we have hurts, we have pains, and we interpret other people's behaviours in very hurtful ways, rejecting ways, ways because we feel unchosen. And so what one thing that we've got to do is we've got to start saying, oh, I wonder if I've got a bit of a problem in here. I wonder if I'm oversensitive. I wonder if I'm a bit too easy to offend. I wonder if I'm already in pain and so then something that wouldn't normally be a problem, it creates pain for me now. That means it's a me problem, not an everybody else problem. Does that make sense? And what the gospel does is the gospel invites us to view our lives a different way. It invites us to look deeply to the source of our pain and ask ourselves, does Jesus need to do some healing work there? Do I need to re-evaluate the identity I've always bought into? You know, before I became a Jesus follower, I hated going out in public. And in fact, girls I'd date or friends I'd have would often want to go out somewhere in public. And the truth is, I had crippling social anxiety. I'd have to go to the shops and I'd have to keep my head down looking at the floor because I was just too afraid even to make eye contact with people. And the only time that was different is if I'd snorted a line of cocaine, smoked some weed, or drunk some Bacardi rum or something like that, and then I had the old Dutch courage, you know, I could sort of muster to hold it together to put on an act long enough to get drunk again later on. And I always used to think, man, what is wrong with me? But now I look back and I realise I was a hurting, broken person, and so I lived out of a hurting, broken reality. Do you know what I did? I pushed people away preemptively before they could hurt me. And I lived in a little castle that I locked myself up in in my mind and thought, right, you're not going to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. And so much of my behaviours could be explained in that dysfunctional way. Man, the friendships and relationships it cost me. The people who are mature in life, like me, in age, would remember when mobile phones first came out. Remember when mobile phones first came out? And now suddenly... You didn't have a phone attached to the wall. You had one in your pocket or on your bedside table or on your desk at work. And so I remember when they first came out, mine I only had for work purposes. I didn't want any more social contact with people. I think I was part cat or something. And uh, I remember friends would ring me or text message me on my mobile to ask me if I wanted to go somewhere or do something with them. And I would be so anxious and scared and nervous, I wouldn't even take the call. And I wouldn't take the call and I wouldn't return the call. And they'd text me going, hey, just wondering if you want to come hang out tonight. A bunch of us are going for dinner. And I wouldn't even respond because I was so anxious and nervous and afraid to be hurt and rejected. So do you know what happened? I, went, I had a revolving door of people at that stage of my life. Eventually they stopped calling. Eventually they stopped texting. Eventually they stopped asking you to go somewhere because they formulate the conclusion, oh, you don't want to hang out with us. So think about how dysfunctional my behaviours were and I'm only using my behaviours to maybe hold a little mirror up to you and say, what's your version of this story? What, what, what's the way you live out of a broken reality and then you try to cope with that the best you can, but actually you could be really damaging your life, hey? So eventually they'd stop calling. And the weird thing was in my dysfunctionality, I actually pushed people away who were trying to come closer to me all through the fear 
that they wouldn't love me if they really found out who I was and what I was really like. Now, how many of us have done that? Dr. Larry Crabb, he's a wonderful Christian counsellor and therapist. He says that humans have two deep needs and he's re-summarised the famous hierarchy of needs from Dr. Abraham Maslow. And he says that all of our human needs can be summed up in two words. The need for security, we must feel safe. And it starts primarily as biological safety. We need physical safety, we need shelter, we need food, we need clothing, we need the elements off us, and we need to not be getting like, eaten by wild animals or attacked by enemies. We need physical safety. But then that transcends into emotional and psychological and personal safety, doesn't it? And so we actually need to have a life where we feel safe, where we don't feel in danger, where we don't feel exposed, where we don't feel like we're attacked. We need, we need security. Of course, you know that because you've all heard someone say, oh, don't be insecure, or, oh, that guy, he's so insecure. And we understand intuitively what that means, don't we, that a person doesn't feel safe and therefore resorts to negative behaviours, so they do feel safe. The other word, he says, is everybody needs significance. We actually need to feel like we matter. We don't have to matter to every single person in the universe, but we need someone we matter to. That's why we want to be loved. That's why we want to be in a friendship circle. That's why we want to have relationships. And sometimes when we're in such pain, the love of other humans can be such a healing balm for us, can't it? Because it makes us feel significant. There's nothing more important to people than feeling like that they matter to someone in this big old crazy world. Isn't that true? Who's ever read Moby Dick by Herman Melville? There's a famous scene in the book where Captain Ahab is uh, on the deck and he's chasing the whale and there's a big storm and the boat's been tossed to and fro and there's a vice, there's a vice that he jams his arm in until he feels the pain and he keeps tightening that vice, tightening that vice, tightening that vice and he eventually says, a man's just got to have something firm in this shaky old world. And sometimes I thought when I read that, you know, we're like Captain Ahab sometimes, aren't we? Putting ourselves through pain, putting ourselves through pain, clamping ourselves into tight situations because sometimes we just need to find a way to get through in a shaky old world. And so Paul celebrates to the Ephesians in magnificent terms this amazing word, chosen. Wow, look what's happened in the gospel. You have been chosen. For Paul, he celebrates chosenness because maybe he intuitively gets that people want to be significant and they want to be secure. And he celebrates the fact that in the gospel we come into a place where we had lost significance, we come into a place of profound significance because the God of the universe says, I've chosen you. Because in Jesus, the God of the universe says, I've sacrificed for you. Remember the old Sunday school story where the teacher would say to the children, you know, if you were the last person on planet Earth, Jesus still would have come and just died for you. And it's such a wonderful sentiment for us to see the heart of a loving God that chooses people, that acts intentionally, not just towards a whole crowd, but every person in the crowd, that every face matters, that God knows every name. Jesus said, you're so important to God that he knows every number of the hairs on your head. Now, admittedly, that's easier for some of us than others. You know, if we don't find a way to deal with feeling unchosen, we will resort to some pretty crazy ways to find significance and security. Let me give you a, a list of about five, five negative coping mechanisms we have. And what I want you to do is I want you to find a way to talk about this with some people, either today, 
join the Zoom chat that's going to be on Monday night or some of the other Zoom groups later on during the week or old-fashioned style, get together with someone for a cuppa, two metres apart. And I want you to talk about these. And I want you to think to yourself, do I do any of this stuff? Is it possible that any of these things hold me back in life? Here are the five ways we try to attain security and significance. First one is this, we try to manage our externals. We try to look better. It's called appearance management, and it can be our physical appearance, or it can be our reputation. But we try to appear as good as possible. We hide all signs of vulnerability and hide all weaknesses. Try to appear successful, try to appear desirable. Deny our problems. Become a really good actor at pretending we're not what we are. Here's the second one. We try to control reality. Try to be in charge of everything. Try to use other people or things or acquire stuff. Try to marginalise uncertainty by managing our world so well that we're never uncertain about something. We're never nervous, we're never ambiguous. Sometimes controlling reality surfaces in the form of bullying or manipulating. In the form of victimhood where we're always blaming other people for something. In the form of gossip where we trade off the secrets of others to increase our own social capital. Controlling reality. Here's the third one. We try to soothe our pain through pain-relieving behaviours. It's a policy of mine in pastoral ministry, never to underestimate the analgesic power of sin. For most people, sin is pain medication. They are people in pain, and they've resorted to behaviours which they think make them feel better. And they've just got a a little bit upside down along the way and haven't realised that this is actually worse for me, it's not making me better. I was that person. It's not just with drugs, but it can be. But we can medicate, we can eat, we can sleep with people, we can live lives with no boundaries. We can do all sorts of things to soothe ourselves through pain-relieving behaviours. Here's the fourth one. Be accepted and loved by others at whatever the cost. We can have an approval addiction, a people addiction, where we will have no boundaries, no dignity and do nothing as long as someone will like us. You know, man, I can't tell you how many people in toxic situations, abusive relationships, places of deep ill health and pain, but have stayed in those relationships. Why? Because being in a horrible relationship was, being, was better than being in no relationship. Not said judgmentally, a deep compassion for people in that situation. And you know why we do it sometimes? We do it because we're so scared that we're not chosen, that even if we have to put up with rubbish, we'll put up with that rubbish just so we feel better for a little bit. Here's number five. I've been guilty of this one. Reject others and live solitary lives for self-protective reasons. Push people away so they can't mess with our pain. Push others away so they can't get into our hearts. I'm going to reject you before you reject me. Remember high school where girlfriends and boyfriends would break up with each other before the other one broke up with them? Well, sometimes we never grow out of being those high schoolers. Whatever you do, ask yourself this question. What's missing from my list? What's missing from my list, but maybe it comes from your biography. Maybe you do it yourself. Maybe it's a behaviour you've internalised. Share it with your friends, share it with the group. You know, whatever your way of coping is, it all comes under one heading. It's called questing. We're on a mission, we're on a quest. And the quest is to be loved, the quest is to be accepted, the quest is to be soothed, the quest is to be held, the quest is to be healed, made whole. We've got all sorts of ways to do it. Here are four questions I'd like you to discuss with someone this week. And if you don't have anyone to discuss it with, get in touch with me. We can chat. Here's the first one. 
What strategies have you seen in your own life to deal with the feeling of unchosenness? What strategies have you seen? Be vulnerable. Be ruthless in the way you look at yourself and think, you know what, I could face up to some home truths here. Here's the second one. What challenge are you currently facing that exacerbates that sense of negative emotion? Give you an example, a relationship challenge, a work challenge, a problem person at work that makes you feel crazy. What challenges are you facing? Talk about it with someone. Unpack it with someone. I saw people nudging each other all over the room then. That's like, oh, you're sitting next to your problem person right now. Give them a nudge and say. (laughs) Here's the the fourth one. Sorry, the third one. What's your current temptation to help you deal with your pain? The thing that you'd prefer not to do, maybe you've made a promise not to do it, maybe you promised God, maybe you promised someone else, but you're actually suffering temptation. The temptation looks like this. I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm feeling pain, I'm feeling bad, I'm feeling alone, I'm feeling isolated, whatever it is, and, and, and this is just going to make me feel better. Okay, I'm going to give you a little secret that's not talked about enough in our society. You can succumb to that temptation and then you'll feel more pain and more shame when the effects of that temptation wear off, no matter what it is, okay? But eventually, it doesn't have a, a, an infinite power in your life. So eventually, it'll stop paying off. And then you'll feel worse, and then you'll feel guilty, and then you'll feel ashamed. You may even feel confused. Why isn't this helping me, okay? Instead of succumbing to the temptation, there's great power in a conversation with someone about that temptation, okay? Have a vulnerable discussion with someone. If you don't have someone to have a vulnerable discussion with, have it with me. I promise you won't end up on our YouTube channel or our blog site, okay? Have a vulnerable conversation with someone. It actually leeches these things of their power when you open up. Okay, here's the fourth one. Fourth discussion question. How is God challenging or inspiring you to grow in your identity? How is God challenging you here, inspiring you here? Here's my last idea and then we're going to stop. Paul celebrates the Ephesians. In him, we are chosen by God. Everybody say chosen. Think of it this way. Paul celebrates the gospel because he looks at you and says, someone incredibly important, someone infinite, someone powerful, someone magnificent, looks at you and knows you. Think about that. Knows you. Knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart, the Bible says. Knows what's going on inside you. Knows all your secrets. Knows all your pain. Knows your failures and your shortcomings. Sees through everything you do to hope no one else ever sees stuff. Okay? And listen. Knows you. Sees it. And loves you anyway. That word chosen, let's just say it one more time. Say chosen. The word chosen, it's made up of a a Greek word, which means to carefully select something out of of a group, okay? So let's think of it this way. You wanted to buy a, a, a car, you surveyed all the options on the market and you selected a car. You wanted to buy a mobile phone, you surveyed all the options on the market, you thought it through carefully and then you made your choice. Does that make sense? That's what chosen means. It's not just like, oh yeah, whatever, give me whatever. You know the old thing where you, you, you go to KFC and you say, can I have a Coke? And they say, we've only got Pepsi. And you say, oh yeah, whatever. That's not what God does when he chooses you. 
It's not, ah, oh, whatever, eeny, meeny, yep. It's actually something that is an intentional act. It says God's put thought and intentions in. The Greek word references great intentionality in choosing. That God has been highly selective. That God has been highly involved. That God has been highly thoughtful and drawn a thoughtful conclusion. I want to be in your life. Can you, can you imagine that? That the king of the universe looks at you and says, I want you. I want a relationship with you. I want to be so close to you. I live inside your life and you live in me. I want to be joined to you. I want a covenant with you. And then the first thing we do is we say, well, how do I protect God from all my mess? How do I protect myself from God knowing all my mess? And Jesus, with the resounding shout from the cross that says, it is finished, his very final words when he died, says you don't have to protect God from your mess because on the cross, God was dealing with your mess. On the cross, God was dealing with your pain. On the cross, God was dealing with all of our rejection, all of our sin and all of our wounds. And Jesus took it all upon himself. He absorbed our brokenness. And when he died saying it is finished, what he meant was the battle is over on that front now. So the gospel invitation is very simple. No matter where you're going to, no matter where you're coming from, why don't you turn to God and go in his direction? Why don't you get into a relationship with God and walk with him? Why don't you allow the loving embrace of the God of the universe to envelop you and accept you? Because if you do, then God can breathe his spirit and pour his presence into your life. And when he does that, healing can happen. The warmth of the grace of God can happen. Acceptance can happen. Goodness can happen. And Paul looks at the Ephesians and he celebrates, man, God has chosen you. How would our lives change if we began to meditate and internalize that we are not unchosen after all? That deep fear, that deep wound. Maybe things have happened to you that your whole life have told you you're not chosen, you'll never be chosen. But in the gospel message, we're confronted with a word from another world that says, you are chosen. And you're chosen by the one who can choose anything he wants. He's chosen you.